You're about to listen to episode four of part one of the podcast series on Socrates entitled The Alpha Human. If you haven't listened to the first three podcast episodes, feel free to do so to keep you up to speed on what's going on. If you would like to just jump in and listen to something asymmetrically, be my guest. In fact, join me as we enter the fray. You're about to listen to episode four of part one of the podcast series, The Alpha Human. It's a series all about Socrates, the ancient Greek philosopher, and there will be three overall parts to this series. Part one, the one we are currently covering, is all about the historical Socrates, Socrates the man. Now, we started a long time before the coming of the great man, but I thought the format of a podcast allows some of us to take the long view on stuff like this. Plus, it would be very difficult to get a solid grasp of the man's philosophy without understanding where he came from. Once part one is completed, we'll be fully prepared to dive into Socrates the philosopher in part two. Part three will deal with the after effects of Socrates' death, making a synthesis of parts one and two, and hopefully deriving a forceful argument as to why I determined that Socrates was the most important human being ever. That's what the alpha human means. One could argue that Socrates can finish no better than second, as the title alpha human should go to the true, actual, unnamed, unknown, unknowable, homo sapien sapien, the literal alpha human. I give you that. Socrates would be the most important human with an asterisk. For the sake of this argument, he's my bell cow. I'm very excited to present my interpretation of Socrates' philosophy. So if you can hang in with me for just a bit longer, I promise you will receive more philosophy than you can handle. For now, having a clear understanding of the place and time that Socrates called home is crucial to really penetrating his philosophy. One of the more interesting puzzles is that a philosophical system as simple as Socrates is made amazingly complex by factors mostly out of his control. Mostly since he did choose not to write anything down certainly didn't help much. So in order to be able to make sense of the mess that is known in scholarly circles as the Socrates problem, which sounds like a Dan Brown novel, it is best to have a good foundation. We've built a pretty solid one so far. In fact, we've gotten all the way to meeting the beauty in our Beauty and the Beast love story. Our beast, Socrates himself, is only 20 years from being born. So that puts us sort of in the first third of the golden age of Athens, right around 490 BC. It has been 15 years or so since Athens declared to the world that they were all about self-rule. They loved their new style of governing. All those poets, historians, and playwrights were busy pontificating all about the superiority of their new democracy. As we heard last episode, it mostly fell on deaf ears at the time. But it has resonated through history. We live in the very shadow of what they constructed, just separated by space and time. The ineffectiveness of Athens' political agenda notwithstanding, there were other areas Athens was going boomtown dynamite. Regardless of its reception, the declaration of democracy had invigorated Athens and created a very confident culture. There were immediate benefits to this confidence. Athens had been much success in battle. 
You remember that Herodotus quote, better than none of them? But they were very good at trade. And under the headiness created by their emancipation, they became the dominant city-state when it came to trade in the region. They became very wealthy. But here's where it gets interesting. A prime example of a different world that we have to understand. When our modern ears hear the phrase, they became wealthy, we think of fat cat billionaires lighting cigars with their $100 bills. Okay, maybe that's just me, but you get the point. Wealthy nowadays is different than it was back in ancient Greece. Very different. If you're able to see Athens for ourselves, we would be struck at once by one overriding facet of Athenian life. Abject poverty. By the standards of its day, Athens was a cosmopolitan metropolis. By our standards, it probably would struggle to be called third world. The only first for Athens would be chronologically, meaning closest to the bottom, one ladder rung from oblivion having just lifted themselves out of 40,000 years that consisted of a daily struggle just to survive. Wait, what about all that wealth I keep talking about? Well, relatively speaking, Athenian society in general was fabulously wealthy and enjoyed a worldly life unknown in the annals of Greek society historically. But they also only wore two pieces of cloth fastened with two pins. They had no indoor plumbing or sources of water. Here, I'll let an expert fill you in. This is from Alfred Zimmern in his book, The Greek Commonwealth. Speaking to the poverty of Athens, he says, quote, We consider the Greeks as the pioneers of civilization and unconsciously credit them with material blessings and comforts in which we moderns have been thought to think that civilization consists. We forget that they were more innocent of most of these than upcountry Greeks of today or than most Englishmen were before the Industrial Revolution. It is easy to think away railways and telegraphs and gasworks and tea and advertisements and bananas, but we must peel off far more than this. We must imagine houses without drains, beds without sheets or springs, rooms as cold or as hot as the open air only draftier, meals that began and ended with pudding and cities that could boast neither gentry or millionaires. We must begin to tell time without watches, to cross rivers without bridges, the seas without a compass, to fasten our clothes, or rather our two pieces of cloth with two pins instead of rows of buttons, to wear our shoes or sandals without stockings, to warm ourselves over a pot of ashes, to judge open-air plays or lawsuits on a cold winter's morning, to study poetry without books, geography without maps, and politics without newspapers. In short, we must learn to be civilized without being comfortable. So this was written around 1911. Interesting to hear about the technological advances of Zimmern's time as compared to ours. For me, the most effective example he provides in his exhaustive list is tea. Like sort of crazy town that civilization is so old to us and so new to the Athenians that they didn't even have tea. Bridges too. That's a sneaky one. It can pass you by. But if you focus on the fact that the Greeks didn't build bridges, I mean, their rivers were not sort of the slow, meandering, dependable thoroughways like the Columbia or the Mississippi. The rivers of Greece are seasonal. Sometimes of the year they were raging whitewater, other times they were dried up silt beds. Building bridges was not worth it, but good luck running late for court and having to cross raging whitewater without one. The Athenians didn't seem to care. Even the wealthiest of its citizens would have to walk a distance to retrieve fresh water. They didn't pave their roads. 
In fact, the Greeks in general were not road builders. The paths they tread define the overall design of the city-state, kind of like Boston or some other East Coast city that was built for horses and buggies before cars came along. For the fastidious among us, in the modern time, ancient Athens would be a cesspool. To the Athenians of the day, it was the best of all possible worlds. It was just ridiculously poor. Though Athens had been a democracy in name for only 15 years, the people of Athens had been living under the forms that spawned their democracy for almost a century. Most citizens were still adhering to the decree to wear only simple clothing. Over the years, it had indeed become a habit, as had that abstemiousness that was so crucial when forming Greek culture, as had the general notion that all citizens of Athens were equal and each carried the responsibility of their city-states. It was a duty and a desire to be a service to the state. Nowadays, not so much. We'll have much more to say about the Athenian desire to serve their city-state above all else, about friendship, faith, or even family. But for now, back to trading. Athens started to own the seas. A lot of it had to do with where they were situated. Their city-state is in the northeastern part of Greece. They faced east and had favorable ports. Their ports were numerous, easy to navigate, and easy to defend. A trifecta for trade, and trade they did. Facing east also helped, as they meant easy access to established societies. Civilization was progressing westwards. Greece was on the fringe of that, the edge of that progress. There was not much more past them to the west. Rome, as we know it, is still hundreds of years in the future. So to the east, it's a different story. Long-standing cultures, all of them allegiant to the world power of the time, the Persians. But since Athenians were traders and not raiders, they were able to make a swift profit with these mixed societies of Persian and Greek. It was a wild time for a decade or so until the good times had to end. They ended thanks to a guy named Darius. At the time, he was the king of Persia. He's also the father of the more famous Xerxes from the 300 fame. He decided that he'd heard enough of these pests from the West with their strange idea of freedom and promise of a better life. The Athenians had not only been trading with these city-states of what is modern-day Turkey, they were working on turning them toward the cause of the Greek, cause of freedom and democracy. There had actually been some skirmishes between Greeks and Persians in Asia Minor, as it was called at the time. But that was a bad mix for the king. Kings and democracies don't mix. So Darius was a very powerful king of the most powerful empire in the world, and the dynasty had been so for a couple of centuries. And any dynasty that can last over 200 years, that's a pretty strong one, and the Persians were no exception. The Persian army was millions strong, and their empire stretched over more of the world than any other before it. Darius strode the earth like a colossus, and those upstarts on the fringes of society need to be taught a lesson. So that is what we're setting up for. The Persians are going to come calling on the Greeks on their home turf, and Athens will be the only city-state to stand up to the Persian might. We're going to have a battle between the Athenians and the Persians. This is where we get the fabulous headstone from Aeschylus, that playwright, where he said something to the effect, quote, the long-haired Persian knows too well. This is a very famous battle, sort of a turning point or a launching pad for even greater greatness for the Athenians. There's also a good reason to believe that Socrates' father, Sophroniscus, fought in this battle. It's a famous battle that even those predisposed to not know about battles have an idea about this one. The Persians and the Athenians in 490 BC are about to fight the Battle of Marathon. 
and it got me thinking, there are a few things that we know for sure about this battle. One, Persia did not send their full strength army against the Greeks. They sent about 80,000 troops in total, which is really a trifle of their true force. That's a lot, because the Athenians had less troops and even less of a chance. On paper, they were outnumbered at least 8 to 1, the Athenians. They sent at most probably 10,000 troops. Add to that that the Athenians were not known for their martial prowess at this point. Regardless of the size of the Persian force, the Athenians were thought to be outclassed. And the third thing that we know is that the Spartans totally bogged out on the Athenians. They had agreed prior to this, because they knew something was coming, to meet the Persian invader alongside their Greek counterparts. But when it came time to fight, the mightiest Greek state in Greece, the Spartans, stayed home claiming a religious festival prevented them from partaking. Knowing this, I started to consider the actual question as to why the Athenians decided to stand their ground. Actually, more than stand their ground, defeat the Persians, and not just defeat them, but beat their ass. The numbers are crazy. The Persian dead numbered almost 7,000, while the Athenians lost only 192 badass playwrights, poets, and loot players. That, my friends, is what we call a boat race. The Battle of Marathon has gone down in history as one of the greatest military upsets of all time. There have been many, many books written on this topic. If you read one of them, the answer given typically uh, to the reason why the Greeks or the Athenians won is the superiority of the Greek weapons. The Greek foot soldier, called a hoplite, wore a lot of thick leather armor, carried a long spear, a short sword, and a big shield. And that made all the difference against the Persians, whose main weapon was the bow. That certainly makes sense. But if you give these weapons to another city-state, say Corinth, would they have had such resounding success with them? It seems evident to me that the men wielding the weapons had more to do, or at least as much to do, with the Athenian dominance than just the type of weapons they used. The Persian force was not the cream of the crop, more of an expeditionary force than an army, but they were trained professional soldiers from the world's most formidable force. Athens wasn't known for military prowess, but nonetheless, the battle was over before it began. So if it wasn't just superiority of arms, what else could have contributed to Athenian victory? First, Athens may not have been great militarily, but they were no slouches when it came to intelligence. They encompassed some of the greatest minds of the era, and there is no doubt that this type of hidden advantage served them well at the Battle of Marathon. For instance, they chose to make a stand at Marathon to take advantage of the marshy terrain to limit the Persian cavalry, a unit that had a distinct advantage over the Athenians. On the day of the battle, they also eschewed millennia of military advice and simply charged the still-assembling Persians. There was to be no pitched battle between two armies slamming into each other. Instead, the Athenians resorted to more of an ancient form of pseudo-war that factored heavily into the forming of their society. They chose to treat the battle as a raid. This decision definitely had an effect on the outcome of the fighting. One of the main advantages of a raid type of an attack is that it helps to even the odds a bit for the smaller force. It creates an asymmetry to the typical battle, meaning that the smaller force becomes the aggressor and attacks when the larger force is not ready. In cases of asymmetrical battles, the smaller force being outnumbered will typically display greater violence and ferocity to offset the numerical advantage of the larger force. Now, looking at the numbers, it appears that the Athenian strategy worked. 
they were about 33 Persian casualties for every one Athenian. Most of the historical record paints the Athenians leading up to the battle as weak and uncertain. They were a democracy at this point, a true one, meaning on the day of the battle, there were 10 Athenian generals that were in charge for that day and that day only. If the battle was to last more than one day, there would have been a new set of generals. At least that would have been the plan, but it wasn't needed. The historical record doesn't spend too much time on why the Athenians decided to attack the Persians. It was considered suicide by most of the other city-states. One does not simply attack a Persian army, except the Athenians did. They didn't know that their weapons would be superior. They had no way of knowing that their raid strategy would work or if the marshland would actually contain the Persian cavalry. It was a tremendous gamble with Athens' very existence hanging in the balance. So why did they attack? Was it beginner's luck? Just a bad day at the office for the long-haired Persian? Did the Athenians bungle themselves into victory? Hardly. There are two things to consider. Number one, the Athenians were experiencing a natural high of digging themselves out of a brutal financial crisis by resorting to the unheard-of government by self-rule. And number two, the Spartans chose to sit out the battle and wait to see what happened. So let's take that second one first. At the time of the Battle of Marathon, the Spartans were the strongest military force in the Greek commonwealth. They had been for thousands of years. As our man Herodotus puts it, the Athenians sent an emissary 150 miles to Sparta to inquire where they were planning on showing up for the big battle. Incidentally, that's the distance that Herodotus puts down that the person ran. So the famous marathon where he ran 26 miles, and that's why we have a 26-mile marathon, is not accurate, at least according to Herodotus, which now everyone says he's inaccurate. But again, if you remember my diatribe from a previous podcast, I'm going to trust the war hero poet that was really close to it, at least lived amongst the time it happened. If he says someone ran 150 miles over two days to Sparta, I'm going to believe him. Anyway, the Spartans said that they had a religious festival that required them to abstain from the fighting. Now, in reality, the Spartans probably saw this as an opportunity to rid themselves of the upstart Athenians. They were happy to sit back and watch the Persians wipe the floor with the poets, playwrights, and stonecutters of Athens. They were planning on fighting the Persians, that was for sure. It's what Spartans do. But they were unwilling to do so working alongside their rivals. So they contentedly waited on the sideline for their turn once the Persians moved on from defeating Athens and were looking for more Greek blood to shed. It was a sound strategy at the time. By all accounts, the Spartans had read the situation correctly. Until they didn't. One factor they failed to account for in their calculus is what freedom can do for a fighting force. The Athenians had reinvented themselves as freedom fighters. They had spent the better part of two decades learning the ropes of self-rule and were showing great early returns on their decision. But no one was paying attention. As we mentioned in a previous episode, very few of Athens' fellow city-states followed suit with their democratic principles. So how could Athens make their mark? What could they do to prove to the world that they were a force to be reckoned with? Well, I'll say laying waste to one of the greatest military powers the world has ever known is a pretty good start. Another perk of the democratic soldier fighting for his freedom is that it dramatically changes what is known as the social contract of war. And it's involved in any type of war. In any military action, there's a certainty that soldiers will die. However, the specific deaths are unknown to the participants. This means that there was an equanimity amongst the members of the army. They were all equal when it came to the risk. If at the end of the battle, you were lucky enough to avoid death, 
then the equality extends to the fruits of battle, beginning with being able to remain alive. And in the case of the Athenians, remain free. Now, if you're fighting for a king as a slave, then this factor is not very high in your list of motivations for fighting. For Athenians, it was at or near top of their list. So we have the Spartan gambit of waiting to fight to retain all the glory and own the Athenians, and the Athenians are going to try and own the Spartans. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But it turns out that the Spartans were too cute by half. Combine with Athens' need to signal to their contemporaries that military superiority need not only be derived by the draconian methods of the Spartans, but that a man, a free man, can be worth, well, about 33 Persians. It is not surprising that once the Athenians found out that there would be no help from their fellow Greeks, that they attacked the Persians. It would have been almost impossible to stop them at this point, as it was their time to show the world that their choice of democracy was the right one and once and for all allowed them to surpass their long-standing rivals, the Spartans, as Greeks' preeminent city-state. And that's exactly what happened. As the dust settled on the plains of Marathon, there was a new sheriff in town, and it composed poetry, wrote plays, and philosophized. Now, a key type of coalition behavior is signaling, that is, making it apparent that you are part of one coalition or another, that there is no turning back. We see this behavior when a person defects from one group to a rival group. In these instances, the act of betrayal makes the defector persona non grata for both groups. The only real way he can signal to his new group that he can be trusted is to make it impossible for him to return to his original coalition. They need to burn all the bridges and make it apparent to everyone there is no going back. Only then will a new group begin to trust the defector. This type of behavior is not limited to defecting. It can be a requirement for simply joining a group. Getting a tattoo, shaving one's head, committing a crime, all these are signaling behaviors that groups can require new members to do, to signal unfettered allegiance to the group or cause. In a mild way, or not so mild, I guess, in our day, think of MAGA hats. So, when faced with the situation at Marathon in 490 BC, outnumbered and outgunned, so to speak, The Athenians must have known whatever action they took against the Persians would mean that there would be no turning back. They knew the true power and might of the Persian Empire. They knew that they were not fighting the entire Persian army. They knew if they attacked the Persians, win or lose, there would be no turning back, not just for them, but for all of Greece. Because whatever the outcomes of Marathon, the Persians would most assuredly return, and in much greater force. Athens was signaling this was the line in the sand. Win, lose, or draw, we're going to drag you all along with us, fellow city-states. We have discovered the secret to true power, and we are going to make you take notice, regardless of whether you want to or not. If that was the plan of the Athenians, then it worked to perfection. The Athenians vaulted to the lead position among the city-states. Sparta suffered disgrace, and the very course of history was changed. Over the next decade or so, Athens continued to flourish as the Persians regrouped under the son of Darius, the aforementioned Xerxes. This was due to Darius dying and Xerxes made it his mission, number one, to wipe out all of Greece, especially the Athenians. The next time the Persians met the Greeks in battle, on Greek soil, was the famous Battle of Thermopylae. This, this takes place in 480-ish BC, about 10 years after Marathon. This has been portrayed in many movies and books and has been able to restore some luster to the Spartans, 
but in the end, the whole exercise proved futile. The invading force of Persians was, by some counts, over one million soldiers. As mighty as the 300 were, they stood no chance. In fact, once the Persians trounced Leonidas and his small band of martyrs, they made a beeline straight to Athens and burned the city to the ground. Whatever impediments the Greeks threw in the way of this massive force was inconsequential. The Persians merely had to march forward to crush any type of resistance. Luckily, the Athenians figured this out and were not present in their city when the Persians arrived. The complete destruction of the city of Athens was a blow to all Greeks, but it wasn't the death blow that Xerxes was hoping for. A big reason for this is in the fact that Athens was ever the outlier even when it came to how they set up their city-state. Even before the Persians arrived, Athens had an unconventional setup. Most of the population did not live in the city proper. They lived in the suburbs and in rural villages. Athenians trekked to their city-state to participate in city business, but they spent most of their time outside the city walls. This made it much easier to keep the important part of Athens, the people, one step ahead of the Persians. But running and hiding was not a long-term option for Greece. A force the size of the Persians could just inundate the entire peninsula and sit on it like a giant baby Huey. So a mere 10 years after defeating the Persians' expeditionary force at Marathon, it once again come down to the Athenians standing their ground and placing their feet to the throats of Xerxes and his million-strong mega-army. If there was any doubt that the Athenians were a more advanced form of city-state, the next altercation between the Persians and Athenians was to be a wholly different affair than Marathon. The flexibility and resourcefulness of the Athenian way of life conspired with a heavy dose of desperation to formulate a plan to defeat what was once thought to be undefeatable. And the whole world watched as the Persians and the Athenians met at the Battle of Salamis. This battle would prove to be the turning point of the Greco-Persian War. And though the results would be similar, the way it would come out was completely different because this time Athens and Persians would battle on the seas. To be able to defeat the Persians both on land and on sea was a draw-dropping feat for the Athenians. I can't imagine how they must have actually felt once the battle had wrapped up. They were already riding a decade-long high after the first victory, and this latest victory, so much larger and more definitive than Marathon, must have been something. I mean, in less than 20 years, a mere 35 years since they declared themselves a democracy, the city-state of Athens was the center of the known world. There would be one more large battle on Greek soil. Between a coalition of 30 Greek states, Athens was there, and finally, so was Sparta, and the entirety of the Persian force. There were over 110,000 Greek hoplite soldiers, by far the largest army of its kind the peninsula had ever assembled. And once again, the Persians fell under the relentless onslaught of the Greek foot soldier, their bow and arrow strategy failing once and for all. Now, the war would go on for another 25 years, but there would not be another battle on Greek soil. The reason for dragging out the hostilities is because Persia could just run away to their vast empire. And the Greeks felt no need to follow, and they would gladly skirmish with the Persians whenever they ventured too close to Greek territory. For the most part, though, the war was effectively over for most Greeks, and the Athenians wasted no time in establishing themselves as the rulers of all Greece. Now, during the war and leading up to the Battle of Salamis, the Athenians had successfully persuaded hundreds of their fellow Greek city-states to join sort of a NATO-esque-like league of city-states called the Delian League. Now, after the war, 
moved to the back burner, the Athenians were able to hold the coalition together for purposes of security and opening up new trade markets. It was a win-win for most of the city-states involved. But in the coming years, Athens' ability to keep the Delian League together and some of the tactics it used to do so will lay the foundation for the great city-state's demise. But that is a little off in the future. For now, the future looked golden. Athens was on top, the head of the most powerful coalition in the world. So what was our beauty really like now that she was the belle of the ball? She was unlike any city before or since, a true historical outlier. Much of that is due to the size and scope of Athens at her height. No populace the size of Athens had ever and would ever attempt such a thing as true democracy. Athens is a true original in many ways. As far as its size, it was the size of Rhode Island, or for your West Coasters, the size of San Diego County. Its population numbers fluctuate quite a bit over the decades of the Golden Age. From 100,000 to 250,000 persons occupied the county-sized city-state. Of those, there were far more men than women. Athens was not a perfect place. This point made by the fact at this time, about 480 BC or so, women, much like they have been throughout history, were treated abysmally. Well, most women were, but we'll get to that. Athens also had many slaves. One source I read stated that there was one slave for every three Athenians. That's correct. There was a sizable number of slaves in Athens. Now, of course, even those societal black marks are tweaked just a bit by the ever-singular Athenians. In most cases, the Athenians paid their slaves and allowed them to buy their freedom, and some of the more nouveau riche of the Athenian upper class consisted of former slaves. Now, concerning the treatment of women in Athens, how you were treated was based on where you fell in society. If you were a slave, poor treatment was probably the norm. If you were a working-class immigrant's wife or daughter, you were not treated well either. The class of women that was treated the worst in Greek culture was, in my opinion, the wives and daughters of the Greek citizens. I I don't need to specify Greek male citizens since Athenian citizenship was only bestowed upon men. And if we do a quick check of the math, roughly at this point in 480 BC, Athens probably has about 30,000 slaves, 40,000 immigrants, 80,000 women, and 100,000 male citizens. The wives of these male citizens lived lives of quiet desperation. It wasn't an abuse thing, though Athens most certainly had a domestic violence issue, just like every other civilization. It was more of a neglect issue. The daily life of Athens was conducted publicly. The city was designed to afford large groups of people the ability to congregate and to converse. The men of Athens rose early and left home quickly. Their main reason is that the Athenian home sucked cold stone walls, very small windows if you had any at all, straw beds on dirt floors for most of Athens. For the majority of the Denzians of Athens, whether you were a citizen, an immigrant, or a slave, home was a very inhospitable place. So the men left and the women had to stay, all day, every day. For the wife of an Athenian citizen, her whole life was spent either in the cold, dank hovel of her parents or the cold, dank hovel of her husband. And now Athens was a very conservative place, particularly when it came to how they treated the women closest to them. Now, there is a theory out there based on, you guessed it, those ever-helpful evolved traits. Even behavior that can seem wrong and the opposite of protective can have evolved from a real necessity. For instance, ensuring that the continuation of your genetic lineage means tracking and monitoring the activities of the females of your group 
then that can lead to abuse. If you cannot be for certain, sure, that the offspring your mate is having is yours, that can throw a whole monkey wrench into all the other parenting processes that come after the birth of the child, not to mention how the woman's treated. So before the age of paternity tests, that usually meant that humans oppressed the women of their tribe, instituting rules that govern their appearance, set curfews, no-go zones that were also implemented, all in the hopes of securing the sanctity of their lineage. Even after the advent of the medical test to prove paternity, we see a lot of female negative behavior in today's society. Could that be derived simply from an overprotective or overdeveloped sense of protectiveness of our genetic code? Maybe. For the ancient Athenians, keeping their wives and daughters trapped in their cold, dark house was better than losing them to a raid or another man. Treatment of women was a highly regulated business in Athens. You know, almost Islamic in a sense. And some of the Islamic countries where you can find that strangers, men, will sort of harangue or yell or I don't know if they can arrest them or not, but basically publicly shame them if they're not, if they're being impious. Well, that happened in Athens too. I mean, most of their pious police were preoccupied with how women spent their time. This is a society, Athens, that granted the right to accuse and arrest anyone at any time of any crime. And the crime of impiety was very pop in Athens' courts. There was one group of women that was treated altogether differently by the citizens of Athens. Wealthy immigrant women. They were faded and cultivated as a sort of arm candy to the men of power in the city-state. The movers and shakers of the Athenian world, men like Solon, Cleisthenes, and Pericles, still did a good deal of moving and shaking. They just did it without their wives, who they left at home. But it seemed that men still had a need for the fairer sex in their social lives. And the women of means from other city-states, Greek or otherwise, were free to move about Athenian society, mostly gracing the arms of some muckety-muck, but they could also fly solo and engage in the topics of discussion. For Athens, ever the weirdo, cherished these women as much for their intellect as for their physical form. The average Greek citizen was more interested in a good argument than a good stooping, I guess. But to do so, they have to go outside their marriage. It wasn't like they were trying to hide it. There was no skulking involved in this. It was taken as a matter of course. Now, it did seem like the situation was based on privilege. The more middle class the citizen, the less likely they were to engage in this sort of public infidelity. I'm sure it was there, but in many ways it was like what we are used to today. You know, very clandestine and skulky. For women in Athens, unless you happen to be a wealthy immigrant, life was spent at home. And as we said, being at home in Athens sucked. And that's why the men left, to go shout at each other in the marketplace. One of those men is a stonecutter named Sophroniscus. He is Socrates' dad. He would make his way daily, rain or shine, to the town center. Sophroniscus lives just outside the walls of Athens, in a village-like suburb. He lives there with his wife, Farinidi. He makes a living as a stonecutter. But like all Athenians, he is first and foremost a defender of his beloved city-state. He probably fought at Marathon and watched Athens burned at Persians' hands, only to have the tide turned on those same Persians at Salamis and Potidaea. As he made his way through the streets of Athens toward the Agora, what did he see and hear along his journey? He would have found a city that worked on a wholly different set of rules and customs than most cities. 
Now, if we got past all the squalor I talked about earlier and turn our attention to the things that the Athenians found important, we would see where all their efforts had gone. After all, if they weren't building bridges and roads, what were they doing? Well, they were building temples, carving sculptures, composing poems, singing songs, writing plays, engaging in sports, playing games, inventing math, creating moral philosophy, founding the practice of medicine, developing atomic theory, you know, stuff. So as Sophroniscus made his way through the streets of Athens, he would hear poetry and song. He would see plays being performed and feats of strength being displayed. It must have looked like a mix between a medieval festival, a liberal arts college, and a carnival freak show. But all of it is ignored by our brave stonecutter, for he is on a mission to get to the marketplace and his fellow citizens to let them know of his good news. For he is now a dad. Him and his wife welcomed a bouncing baby boy into the world. His name was Socrates, and the proud papa was excited to spread the good news. And it is good news, as we have at last made it all the way to the time of Socrates, our alpha human. He is about to embark on a life that is singular in so many ways that his legacy lives on almost 2,500 years later. But that is a story for the next episode. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I did creating, and I hope to see you next time that you join me as we enter the fray. (laughs) 